Our scripture this morning is John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1678. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. In a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more? Then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. And Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, enlighten your word by the Holy Spirit that we may see Christ in all his glory and all his truth, all his grace, all his love. And by, by seeing Christ, we may follow him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's one image that Jesus uses in this passage that I think is informative for us. It's the image of a mother giving birth. Now, I've seen my wife give birth a couple times, and I'm telling you, it is an amazing thing. It's absolutely mind-blowing. But in a lot of ways, too, it's kind of a scary thing. Painful, gruesome. And what's so interesting about that is that my wife has been joking with me lately because every once in a while when she runs into a little baby, she'll sort of just have a little bit of a, oh, I want a baby again. And if you know what happens when a woman gives birth, you would be amazed by how so easy it is for them to forget that and to say, I want to go another round. But that's a really, really informative picture for us, not only about the life of Christ, what he endured in his suffering and in his exaltation, his glorification, but it's also the life that we are called to as Christians living in this age. First the sorrow, then the joy. First the hardship, the pain, the suffering, the gruesome. 
then the joy, then the salvation, then the glory, right? And that's one important thing that we need to understand about this passage. It's one that the disciples were sort of onto but didn't have exactly right. It's the idea that we are living in between this age and the age to come. You see, the disciples believed that the age to come had arrived with Jesus Christ. And in a very real sense, they were right. What they didn't realize is that the age to come had not arrived in its fullness with Christ's first coming, but only in part. And we see this two-age view of the world in the life of Christ, his death and resurrection. And since we as Christians, as the church, are united to Christ, we experience the same, first suffering, first sorrow, then joy, resurrection. Just like a mother who's going through the pain of labor, but then the experience of the joy of a new child is almost as if to erase all the suffering that she went through to have that child. The path of Christ and the path of the Christian is to suffer and through suffering experience the joy of salvation. Our theme this morning, the sorrow of the cross has been transformed into the joy of the resurrection. The sorrow of the cross has been transformed into the joy of the resurrection. Let's look first at the sorrow of the cross. The whole passage this morning is framed by two little statements that Jesus makes in verse 16. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. So the question is, what exactly is he speaking of when he says, in a little while, you will see me no more? And some have debated what this means. Does it mean that Jesus is going to be going away as in his ascension? Or does this mean something more? Well, I think the most likely reading of this is that Jesus is speaking to his disciples about his impending cross. About the cross that is about to come about the suffering he's going to experience in the cross, that that's going to take him away from the disciples. In a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And what exactly does this mean? Well, it can mean that Jesus' second coming, when he comes again to judge the living and the dead, it could mean that when he comes again at the end of the age, right? But I think the more understandable reading would be That Jesus is speaking to them about his resurrection. That he's going to be separated from his disciples in his death. That he's going to be reunited with his disciples in the resurrection. But that does not mean that there are not applications to us in our current situation and circumstance. Let's look first, though, at the cross. In a little while, you'll see me no longer. And borrowing a lot from Richard Phillips' commentary on the Gospel of John, I want to give you five reasons for sorrow in Jesus' death. The first is the terrible injustice and horror of the crucifixion. Christ is saying that these disciples are going to have sorrow, right? He says, you're asking one another what I mean by, in a little while you'll see me no more. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve. What kind of grief is he talking about? Five reasons for sorrow in Jesus' death. The first is the terrible injustice and horror of the crucifixion. We don't understand often the kind of wickedness and painfulness 
The cross is the man's worst invented way of death. Most painful invented way of death. Scourged with whips, beaten by pitiless soldiers, a crown of thorn crushed upon his head, presented in mockery before the people, nailed through his hands and feet. And Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon on this very text, said, Might not angels wish to weep in sympathy with him? Who can forbear the sorrow when Jesus stands, insulted by menials, reviled by abjects, forsaken by his friends, blasphemed by foes? It was enough to make a man's heart break to see the Lamb of God so roughly handled. And we need to understand, too, that the way that Christ was mocked upon the cross continues today in our world. His name is made a curse. His death is rejected. He is seen as a fairy tale of people who need a crutch in their lives. Jesus Christ is mocked and spit on just as much today as he was on the day of his crucifixion. So let us hold high the name of Christ. A second reason for sorrow in Jesus' death, the cause of Jesus' crucifixion should cause us sorrow. You see, it was not just that the crucifixion was a gruesome and horrible death, a most painful and wicked invention of suffering and torture, but that we must understand that Jesus was crucified not because he committed a crime, not because he was guilty and deserving of it. Jesus was crucified in the redemptive plan of God for our sins. He was crucified because of us. Spurgeon said once again, the sword which pierced his heart through and through was forged by our offenses. The vengeance was due for sins which he had committed and justice exacted its rights at his hands. You see, we should be overcome with grief when we understand our primary role in the crucifixion of God's Son. Another reason why there's a sorrow in the cross is that the loss of Christ's physical presence. You see, the disciples loved Jesus, and the thought of being parted from him grieved them. Often throughout the farewell discourse, they are very deeply troubled by this idea that Jesus is going to be leaving them. He said, I go to the Father, right? And where I go, you cannot follow but I will come and get you. And they're disturbed by this loss of his physical presence. They left all to follow him. And his absence would leave a void in their lives, just like the void of a lost dear loved one or friend. And we as Christians today know this in part, this pain and this sorrow. You see, Christ is not physically present with us. But the more we come to love Christ, the more... We desire to have his unmediated presence. The more we desire to be with him. He is with us powerfully by his Holy Spirit. But we long for a fuller communion. And our hearts are sorrowful in this age. Of Jesus' bodily absence from earth. Just like the song we sang. 
footsteps of Jesus. We want to walk in those footsteps. We want to follow in those footsteps. And because Christ has gone that way, all the footsteps glow. But there is a desire for those footsteps to end, finally, in the physical presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Another reason for sorrow in the cross is Jesus' words in verse 20. He said, you'll weep and lament, but the, word, but the world will rejoice. James Montgomery Boyce says, the world, far from sorrowing at the loss of Jesus, actually rejoiced that he was now out of their way and would no longer be a bother to them. The world wants Jesus out of the picture. They don't want Jesus' name in the public domain. They don't want Jesus spoken of. People are glad for Jesus to not be in this world and would rather have his crucifixion than his righteous reign. Jesus is a nuisance to them. Jesus is a name that pricks their conscience. Jesus is a name that brings to mind their deserving of punishment, of hell. They don't want anybody to mess with their fun time, with their good time. People don't want Jesus in the world. So we as Christians, we weep and we lament because Christ is not with us. But the world rejoices. Just as the world rejoiced when they crucified Jesus, saying, finally, he's not going to bring the Roman Empire down upon us anymore. Finally, we got rid of this guy who they kept saying was the Messiah. He's out of our way. We now can have the influence. We now can have the popularity that we deserve. Now that he's out of the picture, that's what the world is saying today. Finally, we can be our own messiahs. We can be our own gods. We can be our own lords and saviors. We like it when Jesus is out of the picture. But we as Christians in this world, we weep, we lament. The Christ is not here. And fifth, another reason for sorrow in the cross is disappointment over Jesus' apparent failure in establishing God's reign and salvation. The disciples on the road to Emmaus said of Christ, to Christ, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. One thing that we need to understand is that the disciples believed Jesus had come to start the messianic reign, to bring it into its fullness. But the way that they understood that was a political, military leader who would rise up in the nation of Israel and bring back the land and the people to the glory of Solomon's day. And when Christ was crucified, those dreams were crushed. You see, many Christians today are disappointed over the frustration involved with serving Jesus in this world. The sometimes apparent failure of gospel ministry. We strive to live for Christ in this world. We pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We seek to do justice in the public realm. We fight against injustice and unlawful rules and laws and statutes. We cry out against the murder of the unborn children. 
We seek God's ways of love and care for those around us, seeing everyone in the image of God. We desire that others would come to know the good news of Jesus Christ, proclaiming salvation of their sins. But sometimes, more often than not, it feels as if we are making no progress. We are being frustrated. And it can seem that the more devoted we are to the cause of Christ, the more difficult our lives can become and the more disappointment we can experience. Wow, Carrie, you're being a Debbie Downer. Well, why don't we talk about the joy of the resurrection then? The sorrow of the cross. We looked at five reasons for sorrow at the cross. Let's look at five reasons for joy in Jesus' resurrection. Jesus said, in a little while you'll see me no more. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. And then after a little while you'll see me. The resurrection. First, in the resurrection, God the Father overturned the unjust verdict of mankind and publicly vindicated his son. You see, in the resurrection, God mocks the rejoicing of the world. You will weep and mourn, the world will rejoice. And in the resurrection, God says, Your rejoicing is in vain. And now my people shall rejoice. In Acts chapter 3, Peter said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. The vindication of Christ the Son, all those who are his are vindicated. As well. God raises Jesus Christ to show that the world was wrong. The world was wrong. And to put your hope and put your trust in the world and the ways of the world. If you listen to the world, they'll say, don't follow that Jesus stuff. That Jesus stuff isn't worth anything. Why are you doing anything in this life for the next life? This life is all the life we have. Enjoy it to its fullness. Take it all in. Don't worry about this Jesus guy. And then in the resurrection of Christ, God is saying, Jesus should be the focus of this life. To put your hope and your trust in Christ is well deserved. Those who wait on the Lord will not be put to shame. Christ said, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Second, the resurrection proved God's acceptance of the redemption achieved by Christ's atoning death. You see, it is true that we're grieved to know that our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. But this grief is transformed into joy when the resurrected Christ declares our guilt removed forever and God's justice satisfied once for all. I want you to take note of the words Christ says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Your grief will turn to joy. 
You see, this is not some sort of shallow understanding of, of our sorrow and our grief being simply forgotten in the greatness of the new joy. It's a much deeper reality than that. See, when a woman gives birth, she does not forget all the pain that she experienced in labor. She does not forget all the things that she went through in the nine months carrying that child. She does not forget all those things. Those things aren't forgotten necessarily, but all of that is transformed into the worth, the goodness, the joy of the child she now has. And the joy that we experience in seeing that Christ was crucified for our sins, it's transformed into the joy of knowing, or the sorrow that we experience in seeing Christ crucified for our sins, it's transformed into the joy we experience in knowing that in that, we are forgiven of our sins. Spurgeon said, heartily do we lament our sin." But we do not lament that Christ has put it away, nor lament the death by which he put it away. Rather, do our hearts rejoice in all his atoning glory, agonies and glory at every mention of that death by which he has reconciled us unto God. It is a joy to think he has taken on himself our personal sins and carried it away. A third, another reason to have joy in the resurrection is that it restored Christ's personal presence to his disciples. But this wasn't a permanent appearance. When Christ came in the resurrection, stayed for 40 days, and then he was gone again. So how can this joy be maintained? Well, we rejoice today in this day and age in the outpouring of the Spirit upon God's people at Pentecost. And this way we have and experience the joy of Christ's spiritual presence with us always. But as this age gives way to the age to come, our faith in Christ will give way to sight. So great will be the joy of seeing Christ face to face that we're told it will perfect our sanctification and glory. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And fourth, the grieving over the world's rejoicing and death of Christ has now turned into the conversion of many people from all over that same <coughs> sinful world. So Christ died, and when he died, the world rejoiced. The wicked world, the world which is under the power and curse of sin. But in the resurrection of Christ, those who are in the world are brought out of the world into the kingdom of God, the family of God. A great example of this would be Paul, who was in the world, who desired the death of Christ. The power of the resurrection made this chief of persecutors a convert that he may be used by God to preach salvation by grace to the very ends of the ancient world, authoring the majority of the New Testament by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the process. And fifth, the joy of the resurrection comes in the securing of our redemption and the death and resurrection of Christ that has given us new access to the Father. Christ said, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. And then finally he says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. 
Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. It's true that Christ had taught us, his disciples, to pray to the Father in heaven. But what Jesus is speaking of in verses 23 through 24 is a new privilege purchased by the completed work of Christ post-resurrection. To pray in Jesus' name to the Father is something that belongs to the new order of this age. Christ tells his disciples, you won't ask me, you'll go direct to the Father. Have you ever been on the phone with someone, a place that you bought something, made a purchase, and they, this employee, was not helping you, and they were being difficult, and they were frustrating you, and what is it that you say next? I would like to speak to a manager. That's what Christ is saying here. A supervisor, a manager. I'd like to see your boss, please. Christ is saying, you won't have to ask me anything. You'll go straight to the boss. You'll go straight to the Father. They would have access to the Father in Jesus' name. That the Father would give them anything they asked for. Clarification. Anything according to God's will. This answered prayer is the means by which all the sorrows of the cross and this world are transformed into the joy of the resurrection, the joy of salvation. Christ says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What I want us to think of is that in this age, we experience sorrow. We experience grief. We experience difficulty, frustration. But Christ has shown us that that sorrow, that grief, that frustration, that difficulty, that sorrow means something. It is accomplishing something. That sorrow and that grief and that pain and that suffering for him produced the resurrection. Produced salvation for sinners. And as we follow in the footsteps of Christ and experience sorrow and difficulty and frustration. And in those sorrows and those difficulties we have two choices. Either this is something that is going to draw us closer to the age to come. Draw us closer to God, to our Savior Jesus Christ. Draw us closer to each other. Grow us in godliness and holiness. Or either that or the sorrow and joy and pain and suffering we experience is going to push us towards the world. Push us away from God, away from Christ, away from each other. And Christ is telling us here this morning that because of what he's done in his death and resurrection, we as his believers, as his people, can transform all our sorrow, all our joy, all our suffering into the resurrection, into salvation, into growing in godliness and holiness, marching closer and closer to the age to come. You look at a woman who's giving birth and you grit your teeth at the pain 
the difficulty and the suffering that she goes through in order to bring a child into this world. But when she holds that child for the first time, it's almost as if all of that is washed away. Because they're here. That's the Christian life. We're going through the pains of childbirth right now. We're going through the suffering and the sorrow. But the joy to come is not even worth being compared to what we experience today. The sorrow of the cross has been transformed into the joy of the resurrection. May we, as God's people, pray in our sorrow that Christ would transform it into the joy of his salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this word would show us the way forward in this life, in this age. That as we await Christ's coming again to bring us home with him, that you may strengthen us to endure hardship and suffering, sorrow, for your sake and for your glory, and that we may grow because of it, knowing that we are following in the footsteps of Christ. May we always look forward to and have hope that even now as we are experiencing in part the joy of our salvation, the joy of the resurrection, may we look forward to the fullness of that that is to come. When we shall see that all the sorrow, all the suffering and pain that we've endured in this life was worth it for the sake of Christ. When that day we finally will be reunited, never to be separated again, but to be together in spirit and in body for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.